morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you all. Uh, it's been about three months since I've preached. Uh, if you're new, if you've just been uh, joining us or visiting this morning, uh, you might not even know who I am. My name is Kyle. I'm the Next Generation Pastor here. And I've been gone a lot this fall. It's been a crazy uh, last six months for me personally. Uh, the short story is this summer, Tim took a well-deserved and, and overdue sabbatical. And so I had a great opportunity for my own growth and development to be rector for the summer. Uh, I got to preach most of this summer. And then Tim returned in August. August. And then about two weeks after his return, my second child was born, and that was wonderful. And I went on uh, leave like I was expecting to. And then about 10 days after he was born, my son Ames was hospitalized with a really complicated form of meningitis. And so I went from uh, working and preaching more than I ever had in my life to a complete standstill to all of a sudden doing no work, no ministry, no preaching. All of a sudden, my, my whole ministry was being a, a father and a husband and praying. And so it was this shocking shift. And I'm, I'm so pleased and thankful to tell you all how well Ames is doing now that he's home and with his family. We are so thankful. God has been so gracious and faithful. But it was a, a weird experience for me this fall. A lot happened. Uh, it was... It was weird for me to, to stop working entirely. And then now I'm back. Uh, we're in 2 Timothy. Tim has been preaching in this book all fall, and I haven't preached a single text, and now we're at the conclusion. So it's a little odd, but I think this is actually God's providential hand at work. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. If you're anything like me, you get to a lot of Paul's letters in your Bible reading, and it is easy to skim over the introductions and conclusions. You want the theological meat of that epistle. You want the message that is going to encourage your faith, that's going to transform your life, that's going to lead you into a greater love of Jesus. And then you get to these intros, these conclusions, and there's all this background you don't really understand. There's a lot of Greek names or Latin names. You don't know who those people are, so you skip over to the next chapter in your Bible study. And when we do that, we miss something that's really profound, something that I, I knew it before this fall, but I experienced it in a deep way firsthand. The ministry of the gospel depends on relationships. Paul was not just a theologian uh, sitting in an ivory tower somewhere, uh, writing theological treatises out into the, the air. He was a pastor who pastored pastors, who raised up churches and leaders. He wrote these letters to people he loved, who he relied upon, people who loved him and relied upon him. And so all of Paul's ministry is done in the context of relationships. And I learned firsthand this fall how desperately uh, important relationships are. When, when my family was going through crisis, it was this church coming around Megan and I, coming around our sons, Orson and Ames, that carried us through. When we were in, in the darkest place we'd ever been, it was your prayers and your meals dropped at my house and your hospital visits and, and your letters that you wrote. It was your love, your acts of friendship that supported me and made it possible for my gospel ministry to continue. And so Paul, in this conclusion of 2 Timothy, is reminding us how important relationships are, that the gospel depends on strong relationships. And so if you have a Bible with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be in verses 9 through 22, and we're going to see three things in particular. 
The first thing is, is kind of obvious. Again, the ministry of gospel proclamation depends on strong spiritual friendships. The second thing we'll see is that the context in which we, we practice this gospel ministry is forgiving one another when we fail each other. It's in the body of Christ extending forgiveness. And finally, the foundation of gospel ministry is a deepening relationship with Jesus, trusting him more and more every day. So open up with me, 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and a household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The first thing we see in our text is that the ministry of the gospel depends on strong spiritual friendships. This whole book has been all about the gospel. I hope that's been really obvious as Tim has been preaching this fall. Paul writes to Timothy and charges him to guard the gospel from heresy, to suffer for the gospel, to continue in being formed by this gospel, and finally, to preach this gospel without ceasing. We see in 2 Timothy 4.2, he tells him, preach the word. And so we're in this final section, this fourth section of the epistle that's all about preaching the word and the way that Timothy closes this section in the whole book is all about relationships. It's all about the friendships that he has. And in, there's two things in particular I want to notice about Paul's relationship with Timothy. First, Paul sees no contradiction between relying upon Jesus and relying upon Timothy. And secondly, Timothy was a spiritual friend, unlike Demas. So first, this idea that Paul sees no contradiction between relying upon Jesus and relying upon his friends. You see in verses 16 and 17, Paul talk about when he was arrested, and this is a, a different arrest from when uh, he, at the end of the book of Acts, when he's on house arrest in Rome, this is, he was released from that arrest, and this is much later. And so he's now in prison, not in house arrest. When he's arrested, he has an opportunity to go before the Roman court and plead his case, defend himself, and he says, everyone deserted me. No one was there. Everyone left me alone. I was completely deserted, and it was the Lord Jesus who strengthened me. It was the Lord Jesus who stood by me. Paul says that immediately after asking Timothy to come. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't say, 
Timothy, I know you have a lot of work in Ephesus. You have an important job there as the pastor of the Ephesian church. And so uh, Jesus has got me. Don't bother coming. That's not what he says at all. In fact, he, he makes a plan. You heard it in there, Tychicus. He's, he's saying, I'm sending Tychicus to you, Timothy, so he can free you up and you can come to me. He's making arrangements for his friend to come to him. There is no contradiction for Paul between relying upon Jesus and relying upon Timothy. And notice the kind of relationship. He, he's clearly not alone. Paul says he's with Luke. Those final few verses, you hear all these names. You hear Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. There are all these Latin names. That's Roman brothers and sisters who have visited Paul in prison. He's not without any allies. What Paul longs for is that spiritual friendship he has with Timothy in particular. He longs for that, that strong bond of love that they have to one another. There's a, a famous uh, Harvard study on happiness that's been going on for 85 years. It's had four different directors because some have died and some have retired. It's been going on for so long. And, and unsurprisingly, the, the major finding of this study on happiness is that the greatest predictor of your long-term health and well-being is the quality of your relationships. It's not your cholesterol. It's not your blood pressure. It's, not, it's your relationships. And so for way too long in the West, we have undermined, uh, minimized the importance of relationships, of friendship for our well-being. But in the church, I think we also undermine and minimize the importance of spiritual friendships for our spiritual well-being. Here's Paul saying, I need Jesus I need Jesus to be my strength. And Timothy, I need you. Come, be with me. Make it a priority. Get here before winter. He wants to be encouraged by his friend. And again, I said, this is not just a friendship, a spiritual friendship. It's in contrast to Demas. Demas was also a co-worker with Paul. He's mentioned in Colossians and Philemon with all of the other workers, co-workers in the gospel with Paul. But here, something new has happened. Demas has abandoned Paul. He has fallen in love with the world, and it's pretty obvious based on the context, but it's not the, uh, the way that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not at all. He loves the world like Paul says in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or that word world could be translated age, as in 1 Corinthians 2.6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Demas has fallen in love with the, the corrupt world, the world that is passing away, the world that must be transformed and remade by Christ. Demas is not a spiritual friend who can encourage Paul. He is unlike Timothy, the, the verse immediately preceding our text, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul talks about those who love the appearance of Christ. And so the implicit message is Timothy is that kind of friend. Timothy is the kind of friend who loves Jesus more than all the world. Timothy is the kind of friend that fans into flame Paul's love of Christ. That's the kind of friend Paul needed in his trial. Those are the friends Megan and I were desperate for in our trial this fall. Friends who are constantly reminding us the faithfulness of God. 
who loved us, who prayed for us, who showed up again and again. Do you have that friend? Or have you been minimizing the importance of spiritual friendship? Do you have those friends in your life who point you to Jesus, who strengthen your faith, who encourage you to proclaim the message of the gospel? You may never be a preacher like Tim and I, but each one of us are ambassadors for Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. Each one of us must fulfill the great commission that we talked about in our gospel reading from Matthew 28. We are called to make disciples. Paul, as a minister of the gospel, depended on his spiritual friends to encourage him in his work. Do you have that friend? Who is it? Or are you surrounding yourself with worldly friends? We need encouragement. We need one another if we're going to continue in this important work together. Turn back to the text one more time. Verses 14 through 16. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. The first thing we see in our text is that the ministry of gospel proclamation depends on strong spiritual friendships. But the second thing we see is that the context where we practice this ministry, where we try it on, is in the church. It's when our brothers and sisters fail us and we have the opportunity to forgive them. We don't know who Alexander is, There were a lot of Alexanders in the New Testament in Acts and other epistles. Uh, It was a really common name in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. It's a really common name today. So we don't precisely know who he is. He's likely the same Alexander from 1 Timothy 1, uh, where Paul says that he handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Paul excommunicated Alexander. Maybe this is the same guy. And we don't know exactly what the harm was that he did to Paul. Maybe Alexander stirred up the crowds and he's the reason that Paul has been imprisoned again. We don't know. Here's what we do know. Alexander opposed the message of the gospel. He opposed Paul's message. And so Paul tells Timothy, beware of Alexander. He is your enemy. And this is important to notice because I think a lot of us have this question in our minds where do I draw the line? When do I say, that's a lousy friend and I'm going to cut them off? This person is toxic. I don't want them in my life anymore. We set up a boundary. And we'd be tempted to look at Alexander and say, look, even Paul cuts people off. But we have to pay attention to the immediate context. Right after talking about Alexander, he talks again about how he was deserted by everyone in the Roman church. Remember, at the very end of this, this chapter, he names multiple uh, members of the Roman church. He says there are other brothers and sisters. And the point is, they all left him when he defended himself in court. Everyone deserted him. Paul had his Gethsemane moment when Jesus was surrounded by Roman soldiers and arrested and all of his disciples fled. Peter subsequently denies Christ three times. Paul is in Rome preaching the gospel. He's arrested. He goes on trial and not a single Christian brother or sister shows up. No one supports him. And what does he say? 
He says something similar to what Jesus says. Jesus on the cross prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul here prays, may it not be charged against them. What does Paul want? Forgiveness, pardon, reconciliation. And so the line that Paul draws in the sand is the same line that Jesus draws. Peter, in in Matthew 18, asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times in a day? And Jesus says, I tell you, 77 times. And then, when speaking about the Pharisees, who he declares woe over, he says, sorry, I lost my notes. (laughs) There we are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What's the line for Jesus? Those who oppose the gospel. Those who hinder people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, they're out. But those who fail us, who hurt us, who desert us in the worst kind of way, in in our hour of darkness, forgiveness. And so what you see here is that Paul is modeling the same ethic of Jesus. That if you want to be someone who proclaims the gospel, who is an ambassador of Christ, the place where you get to practice it, where you get to try it on, is in the church with your brothers and sisters who hurt you, with your brothers and sisters who fail you. I remember in seminary, I had a, a professor who was an adjunct. He only taught one class in, in the missiology realm, and he was a pastor in Castle Rock. And there was a story that he shared that's just stuck with me. There was a, a young adult group in his church, and there had been a huge conflict, and a lot of people had gotten hurt. He never said exactly what the conflict was. But one of these young adults came to him for a pastoral meeting and said something to the effect, I just wanted to be known. I just wanted authentic relationship. And the pastor responded, this is authentic relationship. Your friend is authentically a jerk. What are you going to (laughs) do? Are you going to forgive them? This is what relationship in the church is like. Are we going to forgive each other? Are we going to be ambassadors of the gospel first with each other? Are we going to extend the message, I forgive you even as I have been forgiven? Turn back to the text one more time. Verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The first thing we see in our text is that the ministry of gospel proclamation depends on strong spiritual friendships. The second thing we see is that the context in which we get to practice this gospel ministry is the church. It's our relationships with our brothers and sisters who fail us, and we get to forgive them. And finally, we see that the foundation of the gospel ministry of Paul, and for us, is an ever-deepening experience of the gospel for ourselves. It's an ever-deepening relationship of trust with Jesus. Paul says that even though he was deserted and alone, the Lord stood by him and strengthened him so that all the Gentiles might hear the proclamation of the gospel. And it's not 
clear exactly if Paul means that he literally preached the gospel in court that day, or if it's that his execution got stayed off for some time, so he had more time to proclaim Jesus. Both are probably true. In Acts 26, we see that Paul preached to the governors of Judea, Festus and Felix. Then he tries to literally convert King Herod Agrippa, and Herod asks him, are you trying to make me a Christian? And he says, I would that you and everyone who hears me become as I am, except these chains. And then when he does end up in, in arrest, house arrest in Rome, he spends two years preaching the gospel. So Paul was going to preach the gospel wherever he went, whatever context, whatever trial and hardship he faced. But he tells us the foundation of his ministry was this ever-growing trust in Jesus this ever-growing experience of Jesus' faithfulness to him. Jesus showed up and strengthened him. He was growing in confidence that Jesus would rescue him from every evil deed and bring him home. At the end of his life, Paul is more convinced of his need for Jesus than at the beginning. First Timothy wasn't his last letter, but it was definitely one of his later letters. And he says in First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is more convinced of his need for God's grace at the end of his ministry than at the start. He is more convinced of Jesus' faithfulness to save him at the end than at the start. He is more desperate for Jesus' strengthening and help than at the end, at the end than at the start. For this sermon, I, I read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, one of his, his famous books. He's got a chapter in there on friendship. I knew friendship was going to be a key theme of my sermon. And I actually wasn't that gripped by the chapter on friendship. I was gripped by his introduction. If you've never read it, in the introduction, C.S. Lewis says that when he first set out to write a book about love, he thought he was going to write a book about how God's perfect gift love is infinitely superior to our feeble need love. You see, God in his infinite perfection and abundance overflows his love as pure gift without any lack or need in himself. But we, as creatures, respond with love that's like a toddler reaching up. It's like my son Orson saying, Daddy, up, up. That's our love. It's born out of our need. And so he thought he was going to write a book praising gift love and denigrating need love. But as he examined need love more and more, he came across a startling paradox. That it is precisely in our need for God that we draw near to him. He uses this, this idea that we can talk about nearness to God in two different ways. Nearness according to likeness and nearness according to approach. And his illustration is, imagine you're going towards a mountainous village. It's a, it's a village in this mountain valley. And on your journey there, you come to a cliff face where you're standing immediately above the village. You could drop a stone on the house that you're intending to go to, but you're not a mountain climber, so you're not actually there yet. You're near according to likeness. The pin on the map is exactly the same. The GPS coordinates are exactly the same, but you're actually a five, a 10-mile hike away from actually getting into the village. And so we can see how you could be near to God in likeness or near to God in approach or maybe both. Holiness is a perfect example. 
When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he covers over our sins and gives us his own righteousness. We are made holy. We are made like God. We are near to him according to likeness and according to approach because only those who are holy can enter the presence of a holy God. But there's also other ideas like blessedness. God is infinitely blessed, full of abundance. And so perhaps you are happy and successful and wealthy and prosperous in every way. You are near to God according to likeness, but maybe you're a real jerk and you're not at all close to God according to approach. You don't seek him. You don't go after him with your heart. You're like him, but you're not near to him according to approach. And that leaves the final option. What if we could come near to God according to approach and be nothing like him? Here's what Lewis says. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense the least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help? Paul knew an ever-increasing need for Jesus. Paul experienced an ever-increasing dependence upon his Lord. Paul knew there was no way to draw nearer to Christ than to be like the blind beggar who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To be like the tax collector from Jesus' parable, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's in our need for Jesus that we continue to experience his fullness. It's in our awareness that we never grow up beyond and go past the gospel, but actually need to grow ever deeper into the gospel, experiencing it more and more for ourselves that we're able to proclaim that gospel to others. Paul knew his need for Jesus was the foundation of his ministry to proclaim Jesus. Are you growing in a dependence upon Christ? Or are you trying to become independent of him, trying to need him less, trying to grow up past your sins in a sense? That's not the way Jesus would have you approach holiness. Come to him, acknowledging your neediness. Paul knew more at the end of his life how completely needy he was than at the beginning. The ministry of the gospel depends on relationships. It depends on strong spiritual friendships that encourage us to see and savor Jesus Christ as our Lord. It depends on our practice of actually extending the forgiveness we've received in Christ to one another when we hurt each other. And it depends most of all on an ever-increasing dependence on our Lord, a neediness for him, that he would fill us up, he would rescue us, he would forgive us so that we might go out and proclaim his goodness to the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have too minimized the importance of relationships, the importance of spiritual friendships. Lord, would you call us out of our, our isolation our loneliness, would you call us to each other, that we would strengthen each other, 
Would you call us to forgive one another? Would you strengthen us to, to be able to forgive even when it hurts? And Lord, would that be possible most of all as we experience ever more deeply your gospel for ourselves? Would we grow in an acknowledgement of our infinite need for your infinite provision, your love, your grace? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.